And then our gospel lesson is actually from the book of Romans. So it's the gospel of Romans this morning. And I think that'll make complete sense as uh, those of us who know the Lord through the book of Romans. Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation has subjected, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified... He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. That's what we always say. Thanks for laughing, Eric. Uh, in the previous church where I served, we would stand for the reading and then 
that phrase would be, so now you need to sit down. Um, I just will tell you, first of all, it's a privilege to be back with you. Uh, the last time I preached at this church, I had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and uh, that was in June. And uh, so a lot has happened uh, since I've been with you. About nine surgeries and multiple chemotherapies and real, real deep, ugly, dark struggles, physically, emotionally, spiritually. There are times in our home where I did not lead in reading the Bible. I did not pray. If any of that happened, my wife took the initiative. And um, honestly, it never even crossed my mind to pray. That's how out of it I was. I wasn't mad at God. I wasn't, uh, you know, holding back from him. My brain was fried with chemotherapy. And so I want to thank my wife and my friends and so many of y'all here who prayed me through this. And um, the diagnosis is still not great. But, uh, hey, I'm here today with you. And I'm excited to be with you. And uh, in this crazy world we're going through right now, I mean, you know, we run around elbow bumping each other instead of hugging and shaking hands. And I trust me, I understand that. But we just are living at a weird time. And so it is amazing that God has given us this message. Of, I've entitled this message uh, for those who love him. And it comes right out of Romans eight twenty eight. I mean, y'all know. Let me just get a sip. I get... Some of, one of my physical things is I get a little dry sometimes, so. Um, I'm going to say a term, and I'm not sure how you're going to respond. Some of you are going to smile and some of you are going to groan, but the term is family reunion. <laughs> yeah. And uh, sometimes, you know, at family reunions, uh, you know, it can be kind of like, oh, man, that weird, that weird uncle's going to be there, you know. Uh, uh, or it could be exciting, right? You're like, oh, my family, this is so fun. Um, and probably everything in between. But I was about 11 years old, and at that point, I was going to an, an all-black inner-city uh, middle school. I lived in the downtown area of St. Louis. I went to Maplewood Elementary School, and I was the only white kid in my class. And uh, my family uh, was in a very difficult time. And during that difficulty, we all lived with my aunt, and we all piled into her home. Uh, we were on welfare for about six months. And uh, welfare kind of did what it was intended to do, help someone temporarily to get back on their feet. That's a very loaded political phrase, but I just wanted to say our family benefited from welfare uh, for six months. And then, thank God, uh, my father was able to get back on his feet. We had a big family reunion out of the park, and I really didn't want to go. You know, I just just wasn't sure how much fun this would be. I have two Uncle Larrys and two Uncle Carls. You know, that alone tells you a little bit about my family. So, um... Long story, okay. But um, we went out there, and I wasn't in the best of moods, kind of, you know, slinking out of the car, heading over to where everybody was by the tent. 
and I saw one of my uncles, one of my Uncle Carl's, and he was working the grill. And I thought, oh, this, this, this is where I'm going. I'm going to the grill where the food is. And he was teaching me about grilling, and he showed me kind of the hot spot on the grill and the cold spot on the grill and how to make sure you cook certain kinds of meats longer than other. And just, it was a great lesson. And he, he showed me a secret ingredient uh, to which I've been addicted uh, ever since, uh, butter. And um, you, you take butter and you put it on stuff. And it, like non-margarine, not like I grew up, my mother would get oleo. No, butter. I mean, just full fat, bring it to me, butter. And he was kind of daubing that on the chicken and on the pork chops right before um, he put on the barbecue sauce. It was just spectacular. You know, I loved it. So something that I thought was going to be bad turned out to be a great time. And that's kind of a story I want you to think about as a backdrop for this passage because uh, the little church in Rome was, was, they were suffering. It's a little gathered church. They were under incredible persecution. Uh, Their children were being persecuted. They weren't allowed to go uh, even down the street without having uh, people throw rocks at them and say ugly things about them. They were Christians, and uh, they were weird uh, to the pagan world. They were treated unjustly, and they were put in jail for no other reason than they were, they were different than the other people. So they are being persecuted horribly, and they couldn't keep their businesses going. And so in the midst of this, the Spirit of God moved on the Apostle Paul to write Romans, right to the Romans, right? So he's writing them a letter. And chapter 8 in particular is a chapter in Romans. I would encourage you to commit it to memory. It's a phenomenal uh, chapter, bring great encouragement to you. It's only 39 verses, where if you memorize a whole book like Philippians or Colossians, they're more like 115, 120. So you could start with a simple one like this, right? But I want you to think about Romans 8, and I don't know how well you know it, so you may need your Bible. Uh, But uh, the first verse of Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to think about living in a culture where you're constantly being judged and condemned just for being you, just for showing up, just for having a pulse and living in Rome. There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Wow. Oh, if you've never heard that verse before, I would encourage you, just, just if you want, just stop listening to me and, and meditate on the beauty of being in Christ. That because you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for you. Even though we, we deserve God's just condemnation, God, through the work of Christ, has delivered us. And then the last part of Romans 8 says there's no separation. There is no separation. There is no thing and no one who can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So think about Romans 8 this way. It begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Y'all, that's heaven. That's heaven. You're with the Lord. And in him, there's no condemnation, and no one will ever take you away from him or him away from you. You have this great sense of security, even in the midst of suffering 
confusion, oppression, anger, disappointment. So, so Paul reveals this wonderful God, a wonderful God who is powerful and he is personal and he is loving. Now, if you think about that, he's powerful. You think about God says things in here only God can say. The idea of I can take what's going on in your life and I can make good out of it. Who, could, who can tell you that? Right? If somebody tells you that earth, they're selling drugs. Right? It, only God can say that and really mean that he can take the misery and confusion and self-efforts of our life and he can turn things out. He can make them, he can make them good. So this gives encouragement, it gives strength, it brings us to a point of worshiping God because he's powerful, but he's also personal, and he's also loving. When you meditate on this text, you'll see the beauty of this powerful God who's also personally involved with you, who's also loving. Now, if you only have two out of those three, you have a big problem. If you have a powerful God who's personal, but he's not loving toward you, you're in big trouble. If you have a powerful God who's loving, but he's not personal to you, he's kind of irrelevant. And if you have a loving God who's personal, but he's not powerful, he may love you, but he can't do anything about it. We have a powerful, personal, loving God. That should give us so much hope in the midst of our world and in the midst of our confusion. Now, I want to make a simple uh, three-point outline that comes right from the text the first point is all things, not some things, not one thing, all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who love God. Make sure you get that part in there, okay? For those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things, not a thing, not one thing, all things. I mean, think of the story of Joseph. Right, the story of Joseph is one where if you looked at that, you would say, "Man, that guy got torched." You know, he was the youngest son. He was a great kid, basically. I mean, obviously, some things went on that created some jealousy among the siblings, and his siblings, his family, if you will, sold him into slavery. They gave him up. They uh, pushed him over into a very dangerous situation. And then he ended up being uh, imprisoned on a false charge of uh, raping, if you will, Pharaoh's wife. So now he's in prison. And then somehow, God worked all these things out to, at the end of Joseph's life. We kind of start with him as a teenager, and we end up with the end of Joseph where he's like 100 years old. And he looks at his brothers who betrayed him, and he said, what you meant for evil... God meant for good. God meant for good. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you, and I just have to tell you, there are many times in my life I, I don't believe that. I, I want to tell you I do. I kind of want to put on my pastor clothes and stand up here and say, the love of God is such that, you know. I, I'm telling you, there's just times where this poor sinner just says, wow, I really, I really want to believe that you can work all things together for good. God, forgive me 
because sometimes I don't. I get overwhelmed with this sense that your providence isn't enough. I get overwhelmed with this sense that um, this isn't going to work out. This, this can't work out. I'll never forget uh, Christmas Day, 1995. I was at home and I received a phone call. I was in Dallas and uh, Christmas Day, that afternoon, my brother Pat called and said, uh, our little brother, Paul David, is dead. He was shot and killed by a police officer. He was 26 when he was shot and killed. I was 38. It's about a 12 years difference between us. He was my little baby brother. Uh, he would come uh, just as a little guy and um, watch me play sports in high school. Uh, he would come and he wore these cute little clothes. And I can still see him standing at the backstop with his fingers behind the, the, uh, through the mesh. And I'm in high school, and in high school, you kind of want to be cool, you know? And so I'm up to bat, and I'm kind of, you know, clicking my cleats to knock the dirt out, and I'm acting like I'm, I'm pine tar and everything. And I look back, and Paul David has his fingers through the screen, and he's saying, hit a homer, Timmy. And, of course, the catcher is just giving it to me, <laughs> Right. And I literally stepped out of the box, called timeout, and I said, um, Paul David, get your fingers out, sweetie. Get your fingers out. And then, you know, a couple of the girls from the stands ran down and grabbed him, and then I get back into bat, right? I mean, we were really close, very special. And so when I received that call that Paul David was dead, I just had no idea how God was ever going to make any good out of this. I just said, really, God? All things work together for good. And so I, uh, my brother said, will you come do the funeral? Um, my family isn't church-going people. I mean, basically, they have to pay me to go to church. So, um, <laughs> pastor. But um, I went up there, and I was just struggling. I was just struggling. And uh, I went back, and they had the, my brother's body in the coffin. It was closed. And I asked the funeral director, I said, could you open the coffin? I just have to see his body. I'm, I'm just totally in denial, and I'm on the verge of depression, and I'm supposed to preach a sermon in a minute about my brother, and I don't even know he's a Christian. So I need some time. So he opened the casket, and... One of my brothers had brought Paul David. Uh, I come from a very poor family. They had bought Paul David very inexpensive, cheap clothing, but they were new clothes. That's great. But, you know, I just looked down at his body and his clothing. At that time, I had reached a point where I was making a, quite a bit of money in my life, and I was just thinking, oh, dear God. <laughs> my brother's going to glory in these stupid-looking rags, you know, from the wherever, I hate to say a name, because you might say, that's where I've shopped, right? But um, it just broke my heart, and I just started to weep, and I knew he had been shot through the chest, so I unbuttoned his shirt, and there were these little gauze covering the wound, and I just, oh, dear God, he's really, really dead. 
And I pulled the gauze back, and there's this little red dot in the center of his chest. I knew, you know, that was the entry wound. And I literally said, dear God, I'll never tell anybody this story if you will just bring him back to life. Just, just bring it, just, just lift him up. <laughs> just lift him up out of this coffin. He's just too young to die. And the Lord, he just didn't answer that prayer, or he did answer the prayer. He said, no, Paul David is dead. And so we closed the casket, and I went out to talk to the people in the waiting room. And they uh, looked like homeless people. They looked like drug addicts. And so I'm like, well, here we go. Started meeting people. Hi, I'm Pastor Tim. I'm Paul Davis' big brother. I'm going to be doing the funeral. Most people were kind of, they weren't really church-going people there. They were kind of, oh, you're a pastor. They don't know how to relate to me or relate to us in this profession. But I met, and there was this tall black guy, about 6'4", and he was just chiseled. I mean, just chiseled. Muscles. And I went up, hi, I'm Pastor Tim, I'm Paul David's big brother, I'll be doing the service. How did you know Paul David? And he said, oh, we were in jail together. I didn't know, I didn't know what to say. What did he say? We were in jail together. Okay. So I said, well, I'm really sorry to hear that. And he said, I'm not. I go, what? what? And he says, uh, he goes, Paul David led me to Christ while I was in jail. So then immediately I get this sense that, wow, my brother, you know, he probably does know the Lord and he is faithfully sharing Christ even in jail. And that black man took my hand and he started to shake it. And he started to squeeze all of my little hand bones together. <laughs> and he looked down at me and he said, let me tell you something, Pastor Tim. Very sarcastic, very strong. He said, God saves messed up people. And it changed my life. I've never been the same. Because I'm a messed up person. I mean, I'm a, I'm a bad sinner. I have, I have no hope of heaven in my life. Zero. Other than Jesus Christ. And so I came out and I preached the sermon. And then I went outside the church and I sat down on the steps and I wept. For a lot of reasons. I love my little brother. I still miss him. And also that I had a great sense my little brother was with the Lord. He's in heaven. And so on those steps, I was able to say, well, Father, all things do work together for good. That you, you used my brother to bring this man to faith in jail. That's good. That's good. Wish it could have gone another way. And I didn't know what the rest of Paul David's life would hold. It might hold a life being in jail and in prison. I didn't know. But I did have a deeper sense that God works all things out for good. I want you to think about my second point. I want you to think about what this verse doesn't say. Because I think this is where we kind of get messed up. This verse doesn't say that life isn't going to be hard. Let me look. Life's hard. 
And you can experience a tremendous amount of hurt. My mother died before Paul David did. And I'm glad she died before he did. Because when a parent loses a child, it's extremely difficult. And sometimes people in the church say things that they think are going to be helpful. And no malicious intent whatsoever, but we can say some of those most bruising things to people. I've heard people say, well, your, your son or your daughter was a Christian, so they're in heaven. You know, so in essence, they're saying, so get over it and move on. And dry your tears. Got things to do here for Jesus. I think we underestimate and we, we, we don't realize, no, 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 no. It hurts. It hurts because for a mom or a dad or a grandparent, they lose their little one. Well, the only way we've ever related to them is physically. Right? My, Paul, my little brother, Paul David, the only way I knew him was I would say something, he would say something back. Right? Or we would hug or we would play catch or we, we would talk to each other. We would eat together. And, and now he's gone. I, if I say anything to him, he, he doesn't answer back. We don't eat together. He doesn't say, oh, oh, Timmy, make me a, right, a whatever, a cheeseburger. He doesn't say that anymore. He's gone. Sometimes we over-spiritualize things in the Christian world. We kind of get on our theological high horses. And trust me, as a PCA pastor, I live on my theological high horse quite regularly. And we forget the reality. If we're honest with ourselves, we say, hey, man, that hurt, and it still hurts. And I'm not over that. And I hope some good has come from it. I want you to know the text doesn't ever say, hey, this is easy. So don't take this text to mean you're going to have an easy life. I mean, if Jesus, God's son, was punished for our sin and suffered, he lived in his life in poverty, uh, he was beaten for our sins and crucified. Why is it that we think that we kind of deserve to go through life uh, in comfort? Kind of the American dream is amass enough wealth so you're comfortable. So learn your multiplication tables and learn how to spell and take calculus and do this. Learn a second language so you can go to a great school and you can graduate from your great school and you can get a great job and you can make a lot of money so you can be comfortable the rest of your life. God doesn't promise us that. And when our lives aren't comfortable and they are interrupted and it's not easy, sometimes we just lose it as a Christian. We kind of fold our arms, kind of tap our toe at God and say, what are you doing? Uh, Where'd that powerful, personal, loving God go? 
I want us to think about that God doesn't say all things are good. He doesn't say all things that happen to you are good things. Bad things happen to people. You know, as a pastor, one of the things I get asked all the time, well, what about when uh, bad things happen to good people? What about that one? Like, well, there was only one good person, and he suffered voluntarily. That usually ends the conversation, by the way, rightly or wrongly, as I mount my theological high horse. (laughs) But I want us to know that it doesn't say everything's good. Everything was created good, don't get me wrong, but since the fall, things are bad. I have pancreatic cancer right now, right? Y'all, that's not good. I mean, shape it up anywhere you want to shape it. It's not good. It's terrible. It's been horrible. I mean, I can tell kind of funny stories and weave things together, and, but uh, it's horrible to suffer. It's been terrible. It's been very hard on my wife and I, on our, our friends, our family, on some of you who love us and pray for us. It's horrible. And it may get better. It may not. It may get worse. Right, if it comes back and hits my liver, I can be dead pretty fast. And so that's not good. But when Satan whispers in my ear and said, so he's, he's not working all things together for good for you, is he, Tinsley? I'm able to say, well, this isn't good. <laughs> but he's going to work it together for good can't tell you the number of people I've been able to share Christ with over, you know, it's one thing as a pastor, you go into a chemo ward, you know, to visit one of your members. It's another thing to be sitting there with the IV stuck in your chest too. People kind of lean over. It's like, it's like you have this brotherhood, this connection, this club of what kind of cancer you have. How you doing? What do they say could happen to you? How long do they think you have to live? You see the nurse come over and she's coming to help you, but sometimes she does stuff that really hurts. And, you know, I'm an old man, so I'm supposed to not like say, oh, no, I don't want her to come near me, (laughs) right? But in your brain, you know, you're saying to yourself, man, this is going to hurt. I don't want them to do this to me. Somewhere in my mind I know that because of Christ, Because of Christ, I'm going to come out of this one way or the other. I'm either going to be healed this side of heaven or the other side of heaven. So I will be healed. So when my charismatic friends pray over me and they say that they are pronouncing me healed, you know what? For the first time, I realize they're right. They just don't know when. (laughs) And the resurrection is actually more powerful than healing. So I have great hope. And I want you to have hope. If you're going through a very difficult time, because y'all, we're gonna win. We're gonna win. When you know you're gonna win, you live and you play differently. I was in Mexico City watching Mexico City national team play Jamaica in soccer. It's just packed, like 150,000 people screaming. And uh, Mexico was really good that year. And uh, they, they just were not taking over the game. They were not playing well. And uh, the, first, the first half ended 0-0. And I, I don't know what that 
Mexican coach said to those guys, but they came out and they scored two quick goals right after halftime. In soccer, two quick goals is like being up by like four touchdowns, okay? It's just, so, so it's pretty much the game's over. And then you start watching these Mexican players, they started playing total. I mean, they started running with ease, making moves and passes and setting each other up and boom, another score, boom, another score. I mean, it's like Jamaica never got across the midpoint. And, you know, they just were dominated by Mexico. And I, I just thought there, I thought, and I thought, you know, when you know you're going to win, you play differently. And I want to tell you as a Christian, when you know that you've won through Christ, you live differently. You live differently. Because we're freed up. And I want to be very careful what I say about this coronavirus because apparently it's very serious. It is very serious. I love the brother who prayed just a, a beautiful prayer uh, for us on our behalf. And I would say, we, we don't have to be afraid of stuff like that. We, we need to be smart. Yeah, I, I think it's a good idea to spread out and probably a good idea not to run up and hug and kiss, you know, strangers. Uh, but um, we're, we're going to win. Uh, you think about what this verse says, if you go on and read a little bit, it, it says that not only are all things going to work out together for good, it goes on and it says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, those are all spoken in past tense. They all end in ED. Okay, it's not going to be like a big English lesson, so just hang with me. But that means it's already happened. It's a completed past. Predestined completed past, even for the Romans of the first century, completed past. Well, how, could, how could you use completed past with this stuff? <laughs> how can you say predestined? Well, obviously, God looked down through history. He didn't preview history or view it ahead of time. He predestined our future. He predecided our future. And for those who we, he predestined you know what he did? He faithfully did something for us. He not only predestined us, he called us. He called us and he made us to hear his voice. And then those whom he called, he justified. You know, what does it mean to be justified? Well, it's two part. It means Christ takes our sinfulness on himself at the cross. And then you know that perfect life that Jesus lived for, say, 33 years? He takes all that righteousness and he gives it to us. So justification is the two-part thing. He takes our sin away and he replaces it with his righteousness. We will win. I would be so bold to say we have won. We have won. And then after we're justified, we're glorified. This marvelous state of being in the presence of God without sin, without any bitterness or bickering. This is so beautiful to think of the power of the gospel and how we have confidence to live today because of what Christ has accomplished. We know, we know the beautiful idea and truth of the eternal covenant that the Trinity made before the beginning of time. 
I mean, uh, you might want to read through Hebrews 13 and you'll see this little phrase about an eternal covenant. Eternal covenant. A covenant that took place before creation. A covenant that took place between father and son. That Christ would, he promised to take the sins of his people. And God the Father, God the Father promised to visit the sins of his people on Christ. But then also, God the Father and God the Son agreed that we would receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that Christ would fulfill all the promises, that Christ would fulfill the demands of the Ten Commandments, because we can't. This is the beauty of the gospel. And this is why we live lives that are different than the lives of the world. Are we to be prudent in the middle of the coronavirus? Yes, but we are not to run away and hide. We, we are to share the love of Christ with people and uh, want us to recognize the importance of that. I want us to be honest about ourselves and of our great need for Christ. There's a lot of bad things that have happened in our country's history. When our Supreme Court decided years and years ago that black people couldn't be citizens of the United States, That's absolutely atrocious. When our government decided that the land we live on that was occupied by the Cherokee Indians, that the Indians could be removed by an act of Congress, the Indian Removal Act, 1838, and they took those Cherokee and other tribes as well and took them to the west and to the southwest and So many of them died along the way, the Trail of Tears. That's not good. That's not good. Somehow, we trust that God is at work. We trust that in heaven, we know that the throne of God will be surrounded with every tribe, tongue, and nation. So, if a racist could possibly simultaneously be a racist and a Christian... And I have to tell you, in my brain, court's out on that one. Um, Maybe an extremely immature, extremely ignorant, and I use ignorant not in a pejorative term, but descriptive, uh, person could be a racist and a Christian. Maybe if they're uber immature and incredibly ignorant of God's word. That's bad stuff. And may God somehow, some way, make this for good. Well, let me make the last point. Last thing I want to say to you is ask a question. Do you love God? (laughs) It's for those who love God. And are you called according to his purpose? Now, I want us to think about this. And I'm speaking with myself forward on this one. So please don't take this as who he came and he's going to beat the sheep. No, no, just think about this with me for a minute. So often when I pray, like when I pray for my children or my grandchildren or my spouse or for you or for Jimmy and Christine, you know, we pray for y'all. I usually pray kind of high lofty good things. But one of the things sometimes I I fail to pray is that you, that we, would be conformed to the image of Christ. And if you look at this passage carefully, you're going to see something. 
you're going to see that it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that just sounds like, yeah, baby, I'm in that. But wait a second. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of his son. Now let's think about the image of his son. I mean, we can think about the magnificent deity of Christ. He's creator, he's sustainer, he's redeemer. Right, we could literally, there will be millions of sermons preached on that topic until Jesus comes back, we'll never exhaust it. But do we recognize that that we're to be conformed to Christ's image. He suffered. He suffered for other people's sins. He was treated, uh, he, he wasn't treated justly. Now, what I'm about to say is going to be right on the verge of blasphemy, so I want you to listen very carefully, okay? Jesus wasn't treated fairly by men, and he wasn't treated fairly by God, the Father. You might say, now, just hang on. A cotton picking minute. What are you talking about? Jesus was crushed for our sins. If Jesus was going to be judged for himself, there's nothing to judge Jesus. <laughs> He's perfectly righteous. But he took our sin on himself, and the Father crushed him. Isaiah tells us it pleased, it satisfied the Father to crush him. Those are very powerful, very heavy words. I want us to recognize we should not expect to prance around in silk slippers while our Jesus suffered and died. Our prayers must be gathered underneath the rubric or the idea, the concept that we're to be conformed to Christ's image. So when we pray for our children, and we say, dear God, help Sally, you know, do well on her test. I think somewhere in our mind, in our prayer, we, we've got to be thinking, and Lord, one way or the other, would you please use this to conform her to the image of Christ? And one way or the other, would you help me as a parent be conformed to the image of Christ? Because our ultimate is to be conformed to the image of Christ. You see, just because God can doesn't mean God will. He may not do it the way we think he's going to do it. And we don't see clearly sometimes. In fact, I rarely see clearly. But there will be a day. And I love the songs, guys. Just beautiful. There'll be a day when we all hold hands. And we all, as a big family, a family reunion of every tri tribe and every tongue and every nation, of which probably we, as Western white Americans, will be in the vast minority in heaven. And just kind of let that get in our brains here. We'll probably be the vast minority, given the explosion of the gospel around the world today, and being the state of our little bitty population. But one day we'll be able to join hands with people from all over, from all different generations, every tribe and tongue. And we'll be able to hold hands and we'll be able to have a big family reunion because of the work of Christ. And so I want you to know that all things that happen to us, they're not good. 
And God never promised that it would be easy because many of us know it's very, very hard. But be convinced, be convinced that he's justified us and he did it through the work of Jesus Christ. And we can confidently, confidently go through life. Doesn't mean that we won't hurt and we won't cry. Please, let people grieve well. Let, let people grieve well. Some of us are going to grieve the rest of our lives over our losses. We just are. It doesn't mean we're spiritually immature. It means we loved our brother. We loved our child. We loved our grandchild. You don't ever recover from that. But God, in his sovereign providential care, somehow he works all things together for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose, his purpose being conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. So may we be conformed. May God use this pancreatic cancer to conform me and my family and my precious bride and my friends to the image of Christ. May he heal me. I, I would ask he would heal me on this side of heaven. He may not. I hope he does. But to be conformed to the image of Christ, that's our calling. That's our destiny. That's our glory because of the work of Christ. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we come to you and I've, I feel very humbled, Lord, to be here with my friends and brothers and sisters in Christ and to talk about a, such a difficult topic. Thank you, God, that you addressed it in Romans 8 and throughout your word. Help us, Lord, to grieve our loss as well. Help us to weep and wail. And it's okay to be sad and disappointed. But Father, also help us to know that somehow you work things together for good. There is, as one of my dear friends says, there's a collateral beauty to all these things. A collateral beauty of Paul David leading that man to Christ in the, in the jail. Uh, a collateral beauty of this cancer that uh, I'm battling. It's a collateral beauty, Lord, that we would have never, we would have never seen and experienced this glory while we're still here on earth. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are powerful, that you are personal, and you are loving. We cast ourselves at your feet. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said together, amen.